He was 30 when he first drew an alphabet, 46 before he counted himself a professional type designer. Yet by the end of his long life, Frederick Gowdy had become the most famous type designer in the world. This eccentric American created more than a hundred faces, including perhaps a dozen that rank among the best ever made. He was an exasperating loner, but he used his celebrity to stimulate and enliven debates about type and typography that amounted to a kind of national education in the aesthetics of type design. During the last 25 years of his life, F.W. Gowdy was a famous man. He was a popular speaker who traveled across the country and the Atlantic year after year giving talks to students, businessmen, and clubs. His books on lettering and the alphabet had wide influence. His home became a place of pilgrimage for his followers. He was talked about and interviewed on network radio. He was a regular presence in newspapers and magazines, not just those addressed to people in printing, publishing, and advertising, but in Sunday supplements, national news magazines, and even the New Yorker and popular mechanics. That is a short excerpt from the biography I'm going to be talking to you about today, Frederick Gowdy, uh, simply, simply his name. Frederick Gowdy is arguably the most prominent American type designer. He was incredible at self-promotion and just had a career that was a lot different than, uh, than the other designers that, that we've looked at thus far. So I'm really excited for this episode. I think it's going to provide just some really good contrast um, Yeah, as we continue to, to study the history of type design. Gowdy's strength was the strength of his personality. He understood where the people of the country were moving, deep down someplace, and he made his campaign for the idea as a personal one. He achieved a lot because people responded to him personally. So one thing that's interesting about Gowdy, probably because he got his start a lot later in life, is he he just he never existed in this like exclusive design bubble. He hopped around quite a bit in his early career, and his his later work really seems to to reflect that. Seems to reflect this like free spirited American, almost rough kind of approach to to design. So this idea definitely brought uh, Michael Beirut's essay to mind. It's it's titled "Why Designers Can't Think." It's just kind of like an exploration of the end goal of, of design education. I think it's one thing that, uh, that might be helpful just to, to keep in mind as we look at Gaudi, is he definitely had this unconventional approach to his, his studies. In many programs, if not most, it's possible to study graphic design for four years without any meaningful exposure to the fine arts, literature, science, history, politics, or any of the other disciplines that unite us in a common culture. Well, so what? What does a graphic designer need with this other stuff? Employers want trained designers, not writers and economists. Perhaps the deficiencies in typical design education aren't handicaps at first. The new graduate doesn't need to know economics any more than the plumber does. 
like a tradesman, he or she needs skills that are, for the most part, technical. But five or 10 years down the road, how can a designer plan an annual report without some knowledge of economics? Lay out a book without any interest in, if not passion for, literature. Design a logo for a high-tech company without some familiarity with science. Obviously they can and do. Some designers fill their educational gaps as they go along. Some just fake it. But most of the mediocre design today comes from designers who are faithfully doing as they were taught in school. They worship at the altar of the visual. The pioneering design work of the 1940s and 50s continues to interest and excite us while work from the intervening years looks more dated and irrelevant. Without the benefit of intensive specialized programs, the pioneers of our profession, by necessity, became well-rounded intellectually. Their work draws its power from deep in the culture of their times. So this is definitely what we're seeing with Gaudi. I mean, he did not have a formal design education, but he kind of slowly, little by little, kind of worked his way into the incredible work that he did. Um, so yeah, we're, let's just continue to take a look at that. And I guess just a quick note, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but this first section of the book is all about Gaudi's design philosophy. Um, so I think it's helpful to kind of cover that up front. And then of course, we'll kind of transition into his career. His zeal for good design was infectious. He loved to talk about craftsmanship and its standards, and his teaching was extraordinarily effective. Instinctively, he was a cowboy, and he thought every person had a right to make his own mark. His talks and his writings were the old populist cry of American heartland, and he tended to treat the great masters of type design of the 15th and 16th centuries as honored and intelligent colleagues not as unapproachable figures in a pantheon. Gaudi designed so many typefaces drawn from so many sources that it is difficult to tease out of them characteristics that are distinctly Gaudi-esque. In a sense, the variety is a tribute to his imagination and his studies. Taken as a whole, his fonts have a rougher appearance than most in the century. The letters lack the high finish of machine-tooled products. That effect was deliberate. Gaudi meant the letters to betray their origins in several ways. First, he wanted them to reflect the original drawings, which were always done freehand and always showed irregularities. In virtually all his types, he also wanted the letters to have a calligraphic quality. All of Gaudi's faces reflected a predilection for the earliest types, especially those of Jensen, and a conviction that Roman inscription letters are the finest. And all but the earliest deliberately reveal something of their manufacture. Gaudi wanted them to appear to have sprung from the materials and the tools he used and not to imitate characteristics of older methods. Then there's a quote here directly from Gaudi. He says, 
I really do believe that I am the first, in the country at least, to attempt to draw letters for types as things artistic as well as useful, rather than to construct them as a machine might, without regard for any aesthetic considerations. So this is really interesting. It very clearly opposes the ideas that we we saw in episode one and two with uh, Chakold and Renner, who were both very big proponents of simple geometry and and just pure engineered design. So then he kind of just goes on to say that that type essentially has to be slowly worked out through persistence and, and determination. It's not this thing that's like divinely revealed at the beginning of the design. Um, yeah, you just essentially have to go through the, the creative process to, to come to the best set of letters. So I'm reading on here and I, I think I just ran over the point of this quote that, that Gaudi makes and just stated anyway. He says, when a type design is good, it is not because each individual letter of the alphabet is perfect in form, but because there is a feeling of harmony and unbroken rhythm that runs through the whole design, each letter kin to every other and to all. So that's from his book, Typologia, which he later published for other printers and designers. So then there are some notes in here on Deep Dean, which is probably Gaudi's most well-known typeface. It says, Deep Dean does satisfy the requirement of creating a distinct impression in the mass. It has calligraphic qualities, but is free from the overemphasis of scribal characteristics or the shapes of written letters that marks his earlier faces. Two years before he cut Deep Dean, Gaudi had a matrix engraving machine made for himself, and once he mastered it, his types changed. In general, they became freer. They appeared to spring directly from the metal, but they still reveal Gaudi's hand. Deep Dean leaves the impression that it was written directly in metal by fiery fingers. It's a really interesting uh, description. Deep Dean Roman has a marked ruggedness, a simplicity and directness that set it off from European antecedents in ways not apparent at first glances. It is a very American creation. William Edwin Rudge, the great printer, wanted to acquire Deep Dean in his own dedicated type. Bruce Rogers was an ardent admirer of it and used the italic for his letters from T.E. Shaw. Through the years, Gowdy designed five more Deep Dean faces in addition to the italic to meet the printer's demands, and they're listed here, open type, text, medium, bold, and bold italic. Andrew Hoyam, who chose it for his beautiful Aryan Press edition of the United States Constitution in 1887, said, Deep Dean is of the time. It is distinctly American and classical, and it has dignity. It does not look decorative. It is noble. So I'm always talking about these continuing threads that I'm noticing through these biographies, but one one thing that I'm noticing about just the way type is, is talked about as it's released is it, 
I've seen this in these past two biographies as well. It's like the type, the idea, the typeface of our time, or this this typeface is is of the times. It's like <laughs> kind of an old way of presenting something new. It's kind of interesting. At the time, the foundries had many people who were adept in changing older faces in small ways, so the foundries could justify selling them as new faces. If one accepts such small adjustments as invention. We would have to say that Morris Benton of American type founders created at least 200 faces. Grouty, Gowdy, Grouty, Gowdy was not always gentle with such people. He said with annoyance that they would tinker with an edge or add a curlicue and call the result a new face. That was unacceptable. So just as short announcement i am doing a an episode on morris fuller benton this very guy um in in the next episode of titans so just make sure you're uh following the podcast so you can get notified when that that's released so as we kind of just continue to see here gaudi was a, a very opinionated guy it says gaudi also had the gravest objections to baskerville caslon dito and bedoni baskerville he faulted for differences in the weight of capitals and lowercase that made his pages spotty. So, of course, he's looking for this consistent texture in all of the type, um, especially as he's a book designer. He's not just designing these typefaces. He's designing them and, and seeing them in use. Um, so he critiques Baskerville. He also says about Caslon. Um, Critiqued it often for designing letters that could not be composed into easily readable lines and for capitals that too often did not fill well, fit well with the lower case. Dito, which was derived from Bodoni, and, and for Bodoni, Gaudi thought that his types were absolutely devoid of any artistic quality, being so regular and precise in line that a monotonous effect is produced. So even though Gaudi was self-taught, he he definitely saw himself as a professional. <laughs> there's there's notes of him like annoying his friends saying, you know, it's it's really only the professionals who are actually able to innovate from the classical typefaces. So he he saw himself as, as part of that that professional group. He also believed that a designer had to steep himself in the classical tradition until his innovations became natural. So tradition is merely the ladder by which we climb, the working hypothesis that saves us from despair, because it is all we have to go on. A wholesome respect for the thought and effort that has brought about tradition will go far to prevent the perpetuation of errors. So th this is his philosophy brings me back to not only the point of this podcast, but this this quote that that we've talked about every episode, uh, which comes from General Jim Mattis. It goes, living in history builds your own shock absorber because you'll learn that there are lots of old solutions to new problems. If you haven't read hundreds of books, you are functionally illiterate and will be incompetent because your personal experiences alone aren't broad enough to sustain you. 
So it's it's very clear here that Gaudi believes this to be true. You know, you, you he doesn't believe that you just make your way to the level of professional without putting in the work up front and and studying the past and kind of rooting yourself in in the great work that's come before you. So the idea even continues here. This is this is a quote directly from Gaudi. He says the immediate business of an artist may be the practice of but one craft, but useless, or sorry, but unless his interest is concerned with the whole range of art, he will fall short of attaining the fullest ideals of his own. If he would express in his work vivacity, charm, invention, grace, and an interesting variety, he must cultivate a fine taste and a liberal spirit by a study of the masterpieces of all the arts. He will thus gain a breadth and depth of vision, an insight into fundamental principles, and the courage to face technical difficulties. It's exactly the way that uh, Jim Mattis is talking about it. He's talking about it as being a way, just like a a tool belt almost, to, to equip yourself to use these old ideas to, to, to face new uh, problems. He must learn, however, not to imitate masterpieces, but rather to follow the traditions on which masterpieces are reared. Tradition, we see then, is a matter of environment and of intellectual atmosphere. The continuous efforts of generations of cunning workers along one line led naturally to the accumulation of knowledge, increased ability to design, and greater manual dexterity, so that certain ways of doing things may come to be recognized as the best. Therefore, it is only by following good and tried traditions that craftsmanship of the highest order can come. Wow, that's exactly why you and I are here. That's, that's why we are committed to studying the way that we are. In a hand-printed book, there is the experience of a tactile sense of reading, and that is important to an understanding of Gaudi's ideas about type. He printed many of his own books by hand and had a passion for the old books. He insisted when he cut his own matrices that he could feel the difference between one thousandth of an inch and two thousandths of the edge of the typeface. But all his life, he was trying to discover and formulate rules for people whose printing might be done in ways other than the traditional ones. So this is just a great example of one of the ways that I've just been convinced that that Gaudi is worth studying because he's not so fixated on type alone. He he's got this like entrepreneurial mindset. He just does such a great job balancing his his business. Like he he's focused on providing value for the the print community and educating the print community. He's focused on his own work and just developing as much as he can as as a type designer. 
And then beyond that, he, as we'll see as we work through his biography, but he, he's just really great at presenting his, his designs in new ways and, and just promoting his own work. His good humor makes his prodding especially sharp. One can read through dozens of his talks and all his pamphlets and books and ask again and again, all right, what should be done? Gaudi never answers, but asks another question or questions another long accepted rule. In that sense, he is a good old fashioned teacher. Gaudi just seems to be the wise old sage of, of type design. He's using the Socratic method in his teaching. So this is uh, where the book kind of transitions away from his philosophy into his biography. And funny enough, he actually uh, it's noted in here that not a single schoolmate, like in his, his early childhood days, saw a great future for Gaudi. Gaudi remembered winning a first prize in the county drawing contest and recalled that when he was 10, he could make a credible pencil copy of wood engravings found in magazines. And strangely enough, after copying one of them carefully, he could make a good copy of it from memory. So he, he definitely has this affinity for copying and uh, continues to do it in, in, later into his career. Um, so I'll continue to talk to you about that in a little bit. Any creative instinct at this time seemed absolutely lacking in his makeup. He was definitely interested in, in mechanical things and for a period of time was, was planning on actually becoming a, a mechanical engineer. Uh, there's also a record of him in his early days at church. So when he was 16, he, he went to this Presbyterian church and would go to Sunday school and I guess the room that they, they held the class in was just really boring and just lacking any life. So he proposed that they decorate it, and he actually cut out 3,000 little letters out of uh, construction paper to paste up and just put the, the Ten Commandments up on the wall. So it's pretty, pretty impressive for a 16-year-old. And I'm sure he, you know, copied specific letter forms to, to make this happen. So there's only one other uh, documented lettering project that he did as a kid, um, which was, I guess, just before they moved to Dakota. So he, he says, our local baker had got a new delivery wagon and asked me if I could paint his name on each side of it. I did using what today would be called sans serif. And I guess then back in uh, the 1870s, it was known as block letter. In Highmore, Gowdy worked for four years in his father's real estate office, principally as a bookkeeper. He also began doing layouts for many of the different forms the business needed and later said that he unconsciously developed a flair for typographic arrangement. Typography was not in his mind as a way of making a living. However, in 1888, he tried to establish a loan and mortgage company, and when the plan did not work out, 
He moved to Minneapolis and became a department store bookkeeper. The next year, he moved to Springfield, Illinois to work in a real estate office, and in a few months, he left for Chicago. So he, he definitely moved around quite a bit as a young man. Anyone with even a latent interest in design could hardly have avoided being excited by Chicago in 1890. The city was swept up in planning the Columbian Exposition of 1893, and design of everything from buildings to clothes was the topic of the day. The movement that John Ruskin and William Morris had championed in England took root in this country first in Chicago. In the 1890s, craft and design shops were everywhere in the city. Chicago was also the largest printing center in the United States, and Gaudi's first job here had little to do directly with printing. It's noted here that he became a private secretary to Richard Coe Alden, who is a financial broker. So with Gaudi hopping around as much as he did in his early professional career, just reminds me a ton of, of uh, David Ogilvy, who I've mentioned in past couple episodes so david ogilvy says so many similarities here for 17 years while my friends were establishing themselves as doctors lawyers civil servants and politicians i adventured about the world uncertain of my purpose i was a chef in paris a door-to-door salesman a social worker in the slums of edinburgh an associate of Dr. Gallup in research for the motion picture industry, an assistant to Sir William Stevenson in the British Security Coordination Department, and a farmer with the Amish in Pennsylvania. I had expected to become prime minister when I grew up. Instead, I finally became an advertising agent on Madison Avenue, and the revenue of my 19 clients are now greater than the revenue of Her Majesty's government. So back to Gaudi's story, his interest immediately became concentrated on his advertisements. He gained a reputation for ingenuity and clarity in typography among the printers, and the editorials in their magazine, The Inland Printer, began to praise his work. That spur of admiration moved him to start the magazine in 1892, Modern Advertising. It lasted only a few issues, but it brought him the acquaintance of the advertising managers of the city's largest manufacturing and merchandising companies, who were to be his patrons for some years. Through it, he met Will Bradley, whose ingenious design work Gaudi was to praise and imitate for years. It was Bradley who first had the notion of designing an entirely new cover for each issue of a magazine, and the Inland Printer was the publication he chose for a series of impressive experiments. Gaudi often acknowledged personal inspiration from Bradley. So I I did a little research on Bradley. I wasn't too familiar with the name, and he was actually the leading Art Nouveau illustrator Um, at the time, and and the highest paid commercial artist in all of the United States. Um, Also really interesting too, he he was the pioneer of design entrepreneurship. So he he kind of like 
promoted his own exhibitions. He privately printed and sold uh, magazines from his press, which included his own writings, writings from others, as well as advertisements. And all of these magazines like always, always sold out. And he, he was selling tens of thousands of copies. It's really incredible. I think a lot of Gaudi's ideas probably came from, from Bradley. So while Gaudi was in Chicago, he also got a job at a secondhand bookstore where he is uh, introduced to the Kelmscott Press, which is uh, William Morris's publishing house. So also while working at this used bookstore, he encounters the book, The Songs and Poems of Sir John Suckling, which was printed in the Vale type designed by Charles Ricketts and Charles James Cobden Sanderson with woodcut borders and initials by Ricketts. Gowdy, Gowdy says that this is the book that inspired him towards an interest in typography for itself. So incredibly significant. I can't really find the book online, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, you can clearly see Morris and um, these, these type designs by Ricketts and Cobden Sanderson are just a massive influence. So Gowdy continues to hop around. He partners with this guy, Lauren Hooper, who is a school teacher, um, and just kind of opens this, this press. It's called the Booklet Press, and they, they operated on South Dearborn Street in Chicago. Um, this kind of greatly expanded his reputation in, in the city. Um, unfortunately, the press failed and they had to close up shop. Gowdy eventually kind of just turns back to bookkeeping. So he gets a job as a, a bookkeeper and cashier um, of the Michigan farmer. So he ends up marrying his girlfriend, Bertha, and the two of them move to Detroit. And then there's uh, some notes here on his, his job at the Michigan farmer. It says, Gowdy may have been hired to keep the books in order, but he later admitted that he quickly began to spend what he called idle time in the printing shop of the magazine, where he made occasional advertising layouts. One of the magazine's regular advertisers, Alfred Zenner, after watching him work on a layout, asked Gowdy to design several material for him as a freelance job. So it's really cool to see, you know, Gowdy's hired for one thing, but he's always kind of making his way back to printing and, and book production and, uh, and just letter forms. And the feedback he, he got from Zenner on his work, he recalled much later in life in, in an interview. And he, here, here's, you know, his, his thoughts. It says, Zenner looked at Gowdy's design for a pamphlet cover and said, you're not very strong at lowercase, are you? According to Gowdy, that question, quote, put me on my metal and I began then seriously to study Roman letter forms. This just really demonstrates Gowdy's professionalism and, and humility. He, he has a strong desire to, to improve. I mean, he's a self-taught designer. He's, kind of, he's taken the feedback from wherever he can get it. Just reminds me of a quote by Jeff Bezos that I read in an interview with Inc. He says, 
The smartest people are constantly revising their understanding, reconsidering a problem they thought they'd already solved. They're open to new points of view, new information, new ideas, contradictions, and challenges to their own way of thinking. So Gaudi's totally embracing this idea, and he's even noting 50 years later that specifically says that this probably influenced me more in my letter than any other single thing. So Gaudi then lost his job at the magazine, and after working as a bookkeeper for, for a few months in Detroit, he uh, returned to Chicago to set up freelance and ended up doing um, some, some advertising lettering. So he, he works with um, a clothing company. He works with a department store, music publishing house, and just other various advertisers. Advertisers weary of the typographic messes that most pages were in those days were eager to have their products appear in the clear, strong, distinctive pages Gaudi could make for them. So in 1900, Frank Holm, a newspaper artist who had founded the School for Illustration in Chicago, asked uh, Gaudi to, to become an instructor, which began his, his teaching career. There's not many uh, notes in this on the biography, but he does definitely keep the connections um, that he made at the school. So he, he was notoriously dilatory about work. Gaudi agreed to letter an elaborate wedding anniversary album for a railroad president for $140, a fee so large that when Lozier accepted it, Gaudi began to wonder whether he should charge more for all his work. So I, I kind of translated this into US dollars today and it's about 14 or sorry, $4,600. So pretty significant amount, um, especially considering he he's able to, to do it in a day. So it says he found every excuse to delay until he had less than a day to complete the job. And then he finished it in one burst. It's a very impressive rate for uh, just a, a job that can be done in half a day. I've had similar moments in my own career in freelance where I am asking for a certain amount and <laughs> expect a little pushback, but it just smooth sailing goes, goes straight through. So it's really incredible. It just definitely, I'm sure it's an eye opener at this point for Gaudi. He hovered around book publishing when he worked on cover designs for Stone. His cover for George Aid's Fables in Spring was something of a local sensation and Gaudi always treasured it. In 1901, Kuppenheimer asked him to, des to design type for the company's advertising. Gaudi drew letters based on William Morris's golden type. So it's interesting, he, he continues to be inspired by William Morris after uh, finding him in this uh, old, old bookshop that he used to work at. So the type he drew was a book face, not a display, and Kuppenheimer turned it down. Gaudi showed the type to Will Ransom, one of his students in the School of Illustration, who offered to invest to have matrices cut and typecast. Thus, Ransom became a brief partner in the Village Press, which Gaudi has, had established with headquarters in the barn behind his house in Park Ridge, Chicago. The village type was Gaudi's mainstay for half a dozen years. So he then begins printing 
Um, he issues his first book, printing by William Morris and Emery Walker, who was uh, Morris's collaborator. Gowdy paid ransom for the type and thus bought him out of the business. So the Village Press is then just owned by Gowdy and his wife, Bertha. So Bertha was very involved in the press. She, she learned to set type and to fold, sew, and case in books by hand. It says for 32 years, she was the driving force behind the Village Press. She also would um, just bet, make bets with Gowdy. She actually ended up buying a Swedish loom and taught Gowdy how to make rugs. Pretty impressive. So they would make these together and, and sell them on the side to support the press. This is just another way that you can see Morris and the arts and crafts movement in England just have, have a really big impact and influence on uh, Gowdy and Bertha. It was Bertha who then brought about a decisive change in their lives. She had read in a magazine about a flourishing arts and crafts colony in Hingham, Massachusetts. Gowdy went there for an inspection rented a house, and the family moved to Hingham in 1904. It was a long one for people then 39 and 35 who had never gone far east of the Mississippi, but it must have been obvious to them that they could not have much of a mark with the private press in Chicago. So they're they're moving to a location that just kind of more aligns with, with their vision. Just reminds me of a quote um, from John Russell, the he's the former VP of Harley-Davidson. He says, the more you engage with customers, the clearer things become and the easier it is to determine what you should be doing. I just love that idea that there's just higher clarity the closer you get to the customer and, and to the work. That was certainly something Gaudi understood as he was just looking to progress his career. So soon after they arrive in Hingham, they're joined by uh, this guy, W.A. Dwiggins, who was also a previous student of Gowdy's at the School of Illustration um, and had then worked with him in his Chicago shop on many design commissions. So they have this, this working relationship. Dwiggins comes to follow them out. Just a couple notes on Dwiggins, who I, I hadn't really heard of him before, but he was actually credited with being the first person to use the term graphic design. So he has a, a biography of his own. He was an incredible typographer, quite a personality, very much like Gaudi in that he was just interested in so many different things. I'm hoping to do an episode on him a little bit down the road. Charles Park, a Unitarian minister in Hingham, who became a lifelong friend of the Gaudis, told of their operation. So he's given uh, his insight here. He says, their little house was a fascinating combination of home and workshop. Hingham had never seen people who lived with such zest, but for them, life had a purpose to create beauty and to be thorough about it. They threw themselves into their work with a kind of ferocity, laboring, criticizing, cursing mistakes, discussing, speculating, sometimes disagreeing, sometimes exulting, and always with a fierce intensity of idealism that invested life with new meaning for the delighted onlooker. 
So that's really great description of the Yaudis. Like they really came in with a purpose. So the village press produced nine books while the Gaudis were in Hingham. Um, but it, there just was not enough work to um, stick around. It was just a very remote location. But one thing that he, that Gaudi did recognize that he got in Hingham was, were the connections. So um, he, he was introduced to many people in design and printing, including the officers and designers at ATF. Uh, American type founders in Boston. And he became acquainted with Daniel Berkeley, Daniel Berkeley Updike, and Bruce Rogers, who were both well established in the world of books. Updike as the premier printer in the country, and Rogers as the designer and typographer at the Riverside Press. So then, following this time in Massachusetts, they moved to New York City. And uh, with Everett Courier as a partner, they set up the Village Press in a Manhattan office building. In his search for work, one of the first people Gowdy looked up was Mitchell Kennerly. Kennerly had come to New York from England when he was only about 20 years old to take over the New York operation of a London publisher. Kennerly had an instinct for good taste, a genius for publicity, and the ability to persuade many of the best printers, designers, and illustrators to work for him. Later, he also ran the Anderson Galleries, which put him at the center of the arts and auction world. Kennerly sent clients to Gaudi, introduced him to publishers, and eventually commissioned him to design and compose books. After his bleak years in Hingham, Gaudi began to know something akin to prosperity. So immediately he's making these connections in New York City, notably with this guy, Mitchell Kennerly, who I was actually able to find a biography on. So I, I might actually include uh, an episode on him at, at some point. It's kind of funny, like every single biography I've read thus far has presented me with at least two or three more to read. So <laughs> the list just gets longer. So Gaudi's office is on the 12th floor of the Parker building on 4th Ave. And unfortunately, on a cold evening in January, the uh, building caught fire and the offices from the 2nd through the 12th were destroyed. The, the, uh, a courier summoned Gaudi from his apartment, but the two of them could only stand in the street and watch. Everything in the office was destroyed only the matrices for the village type, which had been stored in the building manager's fireproof safe, survived. A few days later, Gowdy rented a desk as it, at an advertising office and returned again to his lettering trade. So this is just really unfortunate. It's the first of two fires that Gowdy actually experienced over the course of his career. It just reminds me too of an interview I was listening to uh, with Eric Speakerman recently, and he he, he described a, a similar experience where there was a fire in in the building that his foundry was in, and it it basically he didn't have any insurance or anything in it. It basically melted all of his type into a single cone on the ground. So they they essentially just had to scrap everything, sell it for scrap, and uh, yeah, wow, what what a thing to have to deal with working traditionally. Shortly after the fire, the Lanson Monotype Machine Company in Philadelphia asked Gowdy to design a new type for the original Life magazine. 
and he delivered the face that became known as the Monotype 38E, along with its italic. <laughs> there are notes, he never really liked the type, but printers did, and it spread his name through the printing industry. For many years, the specimen books listed it as Gaudi Old Style, or Gaudi Light. The name came from the foundry, not from Gaudi, but it was powerful advertising. His continued success afforded him a trip to England um, in 1909, and he made the trip to meet printers and students of books. He was also able to get connected with William Morse's friend and collaborator, Emery Walker, who introduced him to many of the designers in London. Gowdy was given something of an education by Alfred W. Pollard of the British Museum, who opened up the library to him and introduced him to other scholars of Incanabula, which are basically like the oldest printed books that exist. So Gowdy absolutely falls in love with these books and just studies them in great detail and basically just uses them as, as inspiration for later work. So the next year, the Gaudis take another trip to Europe. They visit uh, Paris, Milan, Venice, Florence, and Rome. And, and this one is described as considerably more, more important. Um, so it describes them as irrepressible students on this trip. In the Louvre, Gaudi posted Bertha, <laughs> this is kind of funny, Gaudi posted Bertha as a lookout to warn him of the approach of guards while he sneaked a rubbing from a block with a Roman inscription on it. So the, the rubbing that he does is actually here in the book. It's really, really cool to look at. And obviously the Gaudis didn't have a camera to, to take a picture, but um, with, with cameras too, it, it's often distorting the type. So this was actually... I mean, a little bit risky, but quite brilliant to get a nice rubbing. Precautions of that kind were not necessary in Rome, where he made rubbings from a number of monuments. He also made several drawings of letters found in Renaissance paintings. The effect of that tour on Gaudi was immense. Everything he drew afterward reflects its impact on his imagination. He and Bertha made many trips to Europe in later years, but it was this one that changed his life. The diligence of Gaudi's study here is also just incredible. He's taking this trip, and you know, of course, he and Bertha would take vacations, but for, for on this trip, it was done with a very specific purpose, and that was to, to capture information. It just reminds me of this book that I just finished um, by Danny Meyer, who is the founder of Shake Shack, and he's opened a number of Michelin star restaurants in New York City. Uh, this book's called Setting the Table, but he's also incredibly diligent in his studies. So just listen to this. This is uh, describing his, his research in, in starting a, opening a barbecue. Within a 35 mile radius of Austin in the Texas Hill Country lie five towns I revere each with a distinctly different style of barbecue. The elements of barbecue are limited. Ribs, brisket, pulled pork, chopped pork, minced pork, sausage, chicken, coleslaw, beans, and a handful of side dishes. But it has become an American culinary language with thousands of dialects and accents. I try to understand each variation. 
During one 36-hour road trip through North Carolina, I tasted 14 variations on chopped pork, each defined by subtle and dramatic differences in texture. The degree and type of smoke used, the amount of tomato and vinegar in the sauce, how much heat was applied to the meat, as well as how much or how little crackling got chopped up and tossed in. So that's just like incredible how much he cares about the details and just documenting and studying. It's very, very similar to what, what we're seeing with Gaudi. Then he stopped being an amateur of design. He said that happened in 1911 when Kennerly asked him to design and set his edition of The Door in the Wall and Other Stories by H.G. Wells. Gaudi intended at first to use the Caslon Old Face, a type designed in the early 18th century by William Caslon. Episode coming soon. <laughs> but when he saw a couple of trial proof sheets, he thought it was accepted excessive variation in color between capitals and lowercase letters. He thought there was an excessive variation in color, as well as too much space between the letters. So he stopped work on the layouts and designed his own type for the book. So he designs this typeface forum title, which um, was, was basically inspired by the rubbings and drawings of letters he had made at Trajan's Column. Ironically, it was the Caslon foundry in England that was to make Gaudi famous in Great Britain. So in 1913, Caslon acquired the British rights to Kennerly Old Style, and the next year it bought five more Gaudi faces. The reception of Kennerly in England gave Gaudi official eminence. It was highly praised by critics and typographers, including Stanley Morrison and Sir Bernard Newdigate. Newdigate wrote, that since the first Caslon began casting type about the year 1724, no such excellent letter has been put within reach of English printers. <laughs> so basically he's being held in very high regard with the Caslon type, which Gaudi is actually not a big fan of at all. So the comparison with Caslon might have sparked a sense of unease in Gaudi, but he couldn't have been anything but pleased to be elevated not only above his peers, like Morrison Ricketts, but even above Baskerville. Increasingly, the work of the press fell to Bertha as Gowdy continued on new type designs, and between 1912 and 1920, he designed 20 faces. In 1914, the Gowdys moved again, moving uh, their press into a house on Deep Dean Road in Forest Hills Gardens, Queens. Gowdy publicized the transition upon arrival, he became something of a public figure in Forest Hills. For the next decade, he turned up frequently in news accounts and civic celebrations. He was a great promoter of the 4th of July and club activities. The house on Deep Dean, Deep Dean Road became a kind of disorderly salon for all kinds of people, both designers and not, that liked to hear Gaudi's stories. It was here that his reputation as a raconteur was established. So it's really cool if you look through this book on page 60, there's a photograph of Gaudi lighting up the faces of members of the Junior Advertising Club as he uh, tells a story like very, very expressively. He was becoming a public figure in the larger world as well. 
From 1915 to 1924, he was an instructor in the Art Students League in Manhattan, and his students and associates there became the advanced troops for making his ideas about design and his types known in ever-widening circles outside the world of printing. So during this time, Gaudi compiled many of his ideas and published the book uh, The Alphabet and founded the journal Ars Typographica. These materials were targeted at students, printers, and designers and received much praise. Typographica is by far the greatest piece of design, but Gaudi used it as relentlessly to promote his own faces. It was not so much a journal of typography as a vehicle. That is too tame a word. It was a Rolls Royce or a Hispano Souza for the ideas he wanted to promote. So basically he is, this is really genius. I, I love I love this idea that, that Gaudi's um, utilizing here, but he's, he's essentially creating types and then also creating his own published works that that display these typefaces so it gave him a lot of recognition reminds me of of this quote um by naval ravikant who's the founder of angel list and he says learn to sell and learn to build if you can do both you'll be unstoppable so it's like most people either learn the master in the art of creating work or the art of selling but if you can do both of them simultaneously, that's where you just have the most leverage. This is exactly what Gaudi's doing. I'm a big fan of Ogilvy, and he also says, if you can't advertise yourself, what hope do you have of being able to advertise anything else? In 1920, Lanson Monotype named Gaudi its art director, and he remained associated with Lanson for 27 years. Lanston specimen books through the 1920s and 30s clearly reflect his influence and taste. So his career is just really taking off at this point. He's, he's getting a lot of recognition. He gets the gold medal from the AIGA. He also gets the gold medal from um, the American Institute of Architecture, um, which was definitely outside of, of his realm. And as a result, he, he just starts to receive some criticism. So one of the leading critics of Gaudi, who questioned the originality of his designs and even his standards, was Henry Louis Bullen. Bullen was the director of the ATF uh, library and museum. So Gaudi didn't necessarily have the best relationship with ATF at this time because they essentially produced a number of typefaces under his name from projects that he had no involvement in. So they were using his name, but not paying him for, for the work. So Henry Bullen kind of leading this critique on Gaudi is essentially giving him a hard time for his revival type design projects, not being different enough from the original. There's, there's some other things that were said. Um, basically, he was suspicious for being in advertising. He simply didn't have the learning of some others in the profession. So th those were some of the things that were being said about Gaudi. 
Bullen went on pressing his case against Gowdy until um, late 1930, when both men were growing old. So Gowdy kind of just turns the other cheek. And it's actually really, really, I, this, this was really cool to read. But actually, when Bullen passes away, Gowdy not only attends the funeral, but he gives an incredibly kind eulogy, just sharing about um, how much he owed to Bullen and, and, and to his library. So Gowdy is never vindictive. Uh, he, he's continually receiving praise. He's described by um, one, one person as an Ernstwild bookkeeper from the Midwest who had risen the ranks by virtue of taste and skill. So Gowdy began looking for a place where he could do all of his work, not only designing and printing, but cutting matrices and making fonts. He found an old house in an adjoining mill at Marlboro on Hudson, on the west bank of the river, about 75 miles north of the city. So he buys it and uh, moves in. So he and Bertha name it Deep Dean, which is the name of, of their uh, old street in Forest Hills. In the mill, they installed the heavy equipment, and on the upper floor, they set up a shop for designing, compositing, and matrix cutting. Gowdy was 60 years old when he started engraving matrices, and after that, he cast all of his types and sold them directly. The 50 faces he made after that include some of the most interesting. The Deep Dean types, Gaudi text, Goethe, Village number two, the Trajan inscriptional face, and some calligraphic ones. He even made one for the Remington typewriter. So during this time, he just travels a lot as well. He's invited around for lectures and, and speeches and is just continuing to get notoriety for his work as a type designer. So the story kind of takes a turn, and in October of 1935, his wife Bertha passes away, and she she was only 66 years old. So f- following this, Gowdy just never seemed to to fully recover. For several years after Bertha's death, it seemed to anyone looking through Gowdy files that every moment not given to designing types must have been occupied with dinners given in Gowdy's honor by friends bent on keeping him in good cheer. So he's just got a really good community. He's got a lot of fans. And yeah, they're just trying to keep him in good spirits. So the greatest celebration was the tremendous series of events in honor of the 35th anniversary of the Village Press, with many publications issuing in in tributes and gatherings in New York City, as well as Deep Dean. The printed tributes and declarations of affection came from people ranging from printers' organizations to members of President Roosevelt's cabinet. So Gowdy then designs a typeface uh, just as a memorial to Bertha, and he calls it Bertham. Three years later, Gowdy was devastated by a second fire, so he just can't catch a break. In the early hours of a cold January morning, he was startled awake. When he looked out his window, he saw the mill blazing. The efforts of firemen from several communities to contain the fire were useless, 
and the entire structure and all its contents were destroyed. All the types, the matrices, most of his drawings and patterns, virtually the entire record of the transactions of the village press and type foundry, and a great deal more were lost. Wow, that would that would just be incredibly hard having those those two back-to-back events. So the fire got a lot of publicity. It was in the news. Um it appeared in papers, magazines, editorials, profiles, and columns. This is really cool, though. He, he just, Gaudi had such a good community. Printing associations on both coasts and in the Midwest raised money to help Gaudi out. The advertising club in New York appealed for contributions, and there are boxes of notes from people on Madison Avenue sending donations. Two years later, he's getting a lot of support and just people coming to help out. Two years later, Gowdy was still answering mail he received within weeks of the fire. So the fire just kind of causes him to decide to sell his his collection of personal records and, and books to the Library of Congress. Not so surprisingly, his, his health began to decline. So um, he and his friend Earl Emmons, they, they just begin to work together to complete a compilation of his type designs. And by the end of 44, Gowdy had also finished writing the elegant two-volume account of his types printed in typophiles, a half century of type design and typography. So he has this work put together. Um, I'm going to link it in the show notes if you would like to take a peek you can actually view it for free on the Internet Archive. So Gaudi then dies at home from a heart attack and was buried next to Bertha in Evergreen Cemetery in Chicago. So he's memorialized in hundreds of editorial pages in um, America and in England. And this is some words from... Uh, Arthur Rushmore of the Golden Hind Press. And he said, Gowdy knew what he wanted to do, and he did it. Starting from scratch, late in life, self-taught in creating his own techniques, haunted by the specter of want, he went his own sweet way, and without fuss or fanfare, built a record of achievement in the graphic arts that will outlive the granite dedicated to conquering heroes. Books persist. Ideas cannot be burned. And as long as civilized thought continues, much of it will be read in the characters that Gaudi drew and cut, in which other men throughout the world, unheeding, have set and printed. That's where I'm going to leave it. If you'd like to get your own copy of this phenomenal book, you can do so via the link in the show notes. You'll be supporting the podcast if you purchase via that link. This conversation will definitely continue, so I'll talk to you soon.